Grace and peace be with your spirit. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, you caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Help us to hear them, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What do you want? What are you looking for? What do you seek? Take some time to ask your heart what it wants, what it truly wants more than anything else. Make a list. Write it down. Don't hold back. The sky is the limit. And then imagine that you are God and that there is no limit to your power. That You may design your own heaven and give it to yourself. So imagine what you want. Imagine getting it all. And imagine having to live with it for all eternity. How long would it take you to grow bored or restless with the heaven, the paradise that grows out of your own imagination? Would you be satisfied with the heaven that grows out of your heart? Or would you be disappointed with the life and the world that you designed and created for yourself? Thomas Aquinas says, no one can live without delight And that is why a man deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. And by this, he means, if you cannot delight in the love of God, you will default to the lust of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So again, I ask you, what do you want? What does your life show that you want? And how in the world can you desire something that you cannot even imagine? These are the kinds of hard questions that Peter Kraft poses in his wonderful book, Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. Today is the second Sunday in Advent, and we are exploring the second advent of the Lord Jesus, the coming King. And so it is with the help of God's Spirit and grace that I hope to stir your heart and help you strive to seek something Profound, something true, something real, to seek the face of Christ at his coming. Last week, we looked at anticipation, the anticipation of our coming king. And this week, we take one step closer to that as we consider transformation. Transformation. In the passage we just heard read, there are two kinds of transformation transformation that were mentioned. There is the transformation that takes place in this life and the transformation that takes place in the life to come. There is the transformation now, the transformation later, the transformation in the present and the transformation in the future. Now we might imagine that transformation in this life is what leads to transformation in the life to come, but it's exactly the other way around. It's better for us to say that transformation in the life to come is what motivates and shapes transformation in this life, 
And here's why. The promise of the future coming of the Lord requires us to make preparations now, to get ready for his coming, or as John put it, to purify ourselves as he is pure, and more to the point, and literally, to make ourselves holy as he is holy. Now, making preparations comes naturally to some of us and not so naturally to others. I'll give you an example. Last week, my wife and I were planning to go out with some friends. The plan was for them to come and meet us at our house and for all of us to ride together to a restaurant in Dallas. These friends had never been to our home before. And it occurred to Shannon at the last hour that these friends just might want to come into our house for a few minutes before we loaded up in the car and went to our destination. And so you know what happened after she realized that they might want to come in. We spoke lovingly to each other. We (laughs) slow danced. We told each other how much we meant to each other. And then we frantically went about cleaning the kitchen and sweeping the floor, scrubbing the bathroom, rearranging the furniture, getting things just right so that we could receive these special friends of ours to our house for the first time. We got everything ready, and we're waiting on them to come in and see the glory of the house that we have just prepared for them. But instead of hearing a knock at the door, I simply receive a text on my phone that says, we're here. (laughs) And so we went outside to the car, and our friends never came inside to see all the work that we had done to enjoy all the things we had prepared for them. I want you to know that the coming of the Lord will not leave us feeling disappointed in that way. The preparations that you make will not have been done in vain when the Lord comes. The preparations that you are making matter because they are transformative both for this life and the life to come. These preparations help us to change. They help us to clean up our mess. They help us to get ready for the coming of the Lord. And it's this transformation that is prompted by the promise of the second advent. So that if we imitate Christ, if we make ourselves holy as he is holy, then when he appears, whenever that is, we will have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, we will not regret his arrival. We will not be surprised or upset by it. We will not be embarrassed that he found us doing and living as we are. And so I ask you, what is it that you want? What do you truly want? What are you seeking more than anything else in all the world? What are your dreams and your desires? And do you desire for yourself what Jesus desires for you? Well, even if you cannot answer those questions truly and fully at this time, I want you to hear some good news. And the good news is that Jesus knows what we need before we even ask him. And that he is doing better things for us than we could even ask or imagine him to do for us. On the night he was betrayed, the Gospel of John 17 tells us that Jesus prayed for you. Yes, he prayed for you. And he said, Father, 
I desire that those you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me from the foundation of the world. Jesus prayed that you would be with him and that you would see him. This is a remarkable request. Jesus wants you to be wherever he is. And he wants you to see him just as he is. Not as he was in all of his weakness and humility. Not as he was in all of his frailty and mortality. But as he is in all of his beauty and majesty. As he is in all of his power and glory. In other words, Jesus is asking the Father to give us what theologians like to call the beatific vision. In his fantastic book, Seeing God, Hans Borsma makes the case that the beatific vision is the human telos. It is the end goal and the purpose of our life as promised by God throughout the Holy Scriptures. We see this in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The promise of the beatific vision has its origins not in the minds of theologians, not in the minds of pastors and scholars, but in the heart of God our Savior. God wants to be known. He wants to be seen. He wants to be in face-to-face communion with his children. But after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, sin separated us from God. And that face-to-face communion that we once enjoyed was broken and ruined by sin. As a result, God initiates this work of salvation and redemption in the world. He starts relating to us in a different way. Instead of relating to us visually, face-to-face, he begins to relate to us verbally through our ears, speaking to us, trying to get in by some other means. From the very beginning, God is working on repairing the ruins and restoring the relationship that was marred by sin. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see God unfolding this dream and desire that he has for us to see him. We see God revealing himself in glimpses and flashes, showing us that he's drawing nearer and nearer to us to unveil our eyes, to help us see him as he is. And we see this in stories like the story of Jacob who wrestled the angel of the Lord in the middle of the night down in the mud of the Jagbuk. And it was in the dim darkness of the night that Jacob saw God face to face and yet lived to tell the tale. It was Moses who cried out to God, show me your glory. And he was invited up on the mountain so that God could pass by him and unveil his glory to him, but in a limited way. Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock as the Lord passed by, and Moses was only allowed to catch a glimpse of God's backside as he heard God pronouncing the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And it was Aaron the priest who lifted his hands up over the people of God and gave them 
the benediction that would put the name of God on them, where he said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. It was Isaiah the prophet who was in the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple as the burning creatures sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And then David, throughout the Psalms, praying for the beatific vision, singing about this promise of God, saying, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The point is that God was working on repairing the ruins and restoring our face-to-face relationship with him. His promises and his purposes were ultimately and finally fulfilled in the person and work of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. At the first advent... When the time was right and God drew near, the word became flesh and pitched his tent in our neighborhood. God became a man and lived among us as one of us. And that was a really big deal because up until that time, no one in the history of the world had ever seen God in an unfiltered way. But Jesus Christ, the one and only God who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus has unpacked for us the meaning of who God is. And so it was at the first advent that the Apostle John could say what Moses, David, and Isaiah could only dream about saying. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he could write to the church that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life we proclaim to you. We're not keeping it to ourselves. We want you to share in our joy and we want that joy to overflow into communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, man, I wish I could have seen what they saw. I wish I could have seen what Moses saw. I wish I could have seen what Isaiah saw. I wish I could have seen what John saw. And wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? Wouldn't you love to have seen Jesus walking on the sea? Breaking bread, feeding multitudes with fish, calling little girls from death to life, healing women, preaching to men, hanging on the cross, eating fish in the upper room. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? And Jesus must have known that we would have desired those things because He prayed for us even better things. 
He knows what we need before we ask, and that's why that prayer in John 17 is so crucial. Because in that prayer, he is praying that God will give you something better and do even something, something even better for you than he had ever done before. That you would be with him and that you would see him in all of his glory. Jesus is not playing hide and seek with you. He wants you to come close. He wants you to be near. He wants you to have the best seat in the house to see his face to be aware of who he is, to know what he's doing, to experience his glory, to enjoy union and communion with him. And that is why in 1 John 3, 2, the Holy Spirit reassures us that the Father has not only heard Jesus' prayer, but the Father is granting his request. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we're already God's children by adoption, but we are not yet all that God wants his children to be. We're still growing, we're still learning. We're still transforming into the image of Jesus. Advent is transformative. Whether it's the first advent or the second advent, it is transformative. At the first advent, Jesus transformed us by rehumanizing us. And he rehumanized us by taking away the very thing that dehumanized us, namely sin. And at the second advent, Jesus will transform us yet again by divinizing us, by taking us away to be with him in the place that he is preparing for us, in his father's house, in the new heavens and the new earth. All that to say that at his appearing, we will be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ because we will see him as he is. We will see him as he is in all of his beauty and majesty, in all of his power and glory, and we will be changed by that seeing. We will see him as he is, and we will, as the Apostle Peter says, participate in the divine nature. But this does not mean that we will be like Jesus was in the first advent when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We will not be mortal, capable of wounding our flesh or shedding our blood. We will be immortal, capable of walking through walls and traveling beyond space and time. We will not be less real. We will be more real. And we will not be less human, but we will be more human. We will once and for all finally become what God intended for us to be, what we were meant to be when God made us. We will reach the end goal for which we were created and redeemed. We will become what we observe, truly alive and truly active images of God in Christ. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. 
And to be like him means that we will be without sin and shame. We will be without weak and wandering hearts. We will be without hatred or haughtiness, without pride and prejudice. We will be like Christ. And we will bear the scars of our healed wounds into all eternity. We will not lose our personal identity. We will simply gain his powerful image. John says what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And what I want you to know is what that means for you today on this Sunday morning and what it will mean for you tomorrow and what it will mean for you Thursday. What it means is that God is saving the best for last. You haven't been cheated. You haven't been robbed. You haven't missed out. Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no eye has perceived, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And he will reveal it all in the end of all things. At the epiphany of the second advent, God's masterpiece will be unveiled. His magnum opus will be revealed. And do you know what that will be? It will be the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, coupled with the glory of his people in union with Christ. We will be changed by the beauty and the majesty of his glory. This is the cosmic vision of Christ that the Apostle John saw while he was in exile. In the midst of the lampstands, he got a glimpse of this beatific vision when he saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like white snow. His eyes were like flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And his face, his face, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We shall see him as he is. And if John can be trusted as a reliable witness, we shall see a king coming on the clouds. A lamb looking like a sacrifice. A lion sitting enthroned. A warrior returning in victory. A judge putting the world to right. A shepherd guiding us to streams of living water. A comforter wiping away every tear from our eyes. A sovereign God receiving worship and praise and honor and glory and power from the countless souls who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. As Charles Spurgeon put it, we shall see him as he is. We shall see him not with a peasant's garb, but with the empire of the universe upon his shoulders. We shall see him not with a reed in his hand, but grasping a golden scepter. We shall see him not as mocked and sped upon and insulted. We shall see him as exalted, 
No longer Christ the man of sorrows, the acquaintance of grief, but Christ the man-god, radiant and splendor, effulgent with light, clothed with rainbows, girded with clouds, wrapped in lightnings, crowned with stars, the sun beneath his feet. We shall see him as he is. And this is the beatific vision. The unfiltered way of seeing Jesus that will make, the, make us the most blessed and the happiest of all people in the new heavens and the new earth. When we see him, we shall feel astonishment without horror. All without fear. Love without pity. Joy without sorrow. Triumph without suspense. Glory without shame. We shall see him as he is. And we shall feel quite at home, not out of place. Not like we don't belong. But like we have finally arrived at our heavenly destination. And then we will discover that what we have always desired and dreamed about is this. That heaven is not just a place. It is more than a place. It is a person. And that person is the triune God. And Jesus is right at the center. This is what our forefathers of the faith always wanted to see more than anything else. And you can ask any of them. St. Augustine. Thomas Aquinas, Dante, Calvin, Owen, Edwards, Spurgeon. Ask all of them, what do you want? What are you looking for? What do you seek? And every one of them to a man will say, oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. The beatific vision must be the ecumenical desire that unites all Christians across all traditions, whether Catholic, Reformed, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, you name it. The face of Christ is the eternal delight of all Christians. It's what we all strive for. It's what we all seek after. It is the one truth, the one reality that we can agree upon. That at the end of all things, more than anything else, what we want is to see Jesus, to stand in face-to-face communion with him. St. Augustine put it this way in what many consider to be perhaps the truest and deepest prayer ever offered when he said to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And to help drive home that point, Augustine proposed a little thought experiment for us that I would like to propose to you now. A little thought experiment that goes like this. Imagine that God appeared to you and said, let's make a deal. I'll make a deal with you if you wish. I'll give you anything and everything you ask. Pleasure, power, honor, wealth, freedom, and even peace of mind and a good conscience. 
Nothing will be a sin. Nothing will be forbidden. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will never be bored and you will never die. Only, you will never see my face. You will never see my face. Deal or no deal. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In our flesh, we want to say deal. But our spirit feels that unspeakable chill. And it's that unspeakable chill that we feel in our hearts that is the grace that keeps us from seeking after the gifts instead of the giver. As many of you know, one year ago, my mother was rushed to the emergency room at a local hospital here in Rockwall. She had been suffering with a form of leukemia for several months. After running the requisite tests, her physicians gathered around her bed. They determined that she had experienced what they called a blast crisis. It's every bit as terrible as it sounds. When they finished explaining the gravity of her situation, I asked my mother, do you understand what this means? Do you understand what they're saying? And she smiled and she said, I'm going to see the face of Jesus. And the very next evening, that is what she did. The worst day of my life was the best day of hers. In a farewell letter that she wrote to me, which I just read a couple of days ago, she said, this has been a beautiful journey. And I thought... She could have only barely imagined just how beautiful the journey was and is and ever shall be, world without end. For as it is written, no longer will there be any curse. But the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ will gather around his throne of grace And gaze upon his glory. They will see his face. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. You shall see his face. You shall see him as he is, 
and you shall be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what else could you want? What more is there? What could you ever possibly hope to find in this life or the life to come that comes close to matching that? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.